The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. If you've been tracking with us and with our Advent series this year, you've been listening to the story of the Bible as it reveals all that God has planned in the sending of His Son. And we've been meditating on and anticipating the celebration of the birth of Jesus as a church for the entire month. And we began this journey talking about the reality that God sees. So in our first Advent teaching, we brought to light the reality that God sees our predicament. That God knows our condition. And that he sees clearly how lost we are. But he also sees in the midst of that lostness with compassion. That he actually cares that we are lost. That he's, he's moved in, in some way because he sees so clearly our condition. We also see that, that God sees redemptively. We talked about the reality that, that he looks at the whole of the mess that sin has created in the world and he says, man, I am going to undo it. I'm going to untangle that mess. I'm going I'm to redeem what's broken. I'm going to bring wholeness. And he sees redemptively. And last week, Mike Robinson, one of the elders here at Heritage, shared with us about how God pursues. And he talked about the reality that God is after us. He's after a people that he can make his own. He gave us seven puzzle pieces that demonstrated how it is that God has been in pursuit of a people that he could make his own and and, in which he could say, these are my people. And they would say in response that he is our God. He told us that in Jesus... God's plan meets its purpose. God pursues affectionately even the most lost of sheep. He reminded us that God is clearly seen through the image of His Son and through Jesus we get an idea of the heart of who God is. And that God through covenant, makes us his people, and he is, in fact, our God, and he establishes the Davidic kingdom that was promised, and he makes clear to us exactly what is the good news. The good news is that God is in pursuit of man. And Mike made that so clear to us. This week... We'll have our last meditation on the reality of Advent, that moment of Jesus being born as a baby. We're going to spend our last time thinking through what it means that God has arrived here. He arrived to earth in Christ. And as we've seen from the scriptures that we've explored up until this point, God has been saying the same thing since the very beginning of creation. God made it clear that he would not leave the world broken. Back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, from the moment that sin entered the world, God promised, I'm not going to leave it broken and messed up forever. I'm going to redeem it. From the moment of our crisis, God already had in mind the solution. We're told in subsequent scriptures that not only was it at the moment of our crisis, at the moment that sin entered the earth, but also before the foundations of the earth, that God had accepted this reality and chosen to move forward with creation anyway. God made it clear that he would not leave the world broken And as the Old Testament unfolds, we can see what is sometimes referred to as the scarlet thread of redemption. If if, if you've talked about the, the Old Testament as a sort of tapestry, 
There, there are many stories. There's history, there's poetry, there's wisdom literature, there's, there's prophetic writings. There's history and lists and, and laws and rules. And, and you look at like this, this whole tapestry of the Old Testament. Through it all runs what, what theologians have referred to as the scarlet thread of redemption. That is that you can track the promises of God that he would redeem everything throughout the entirety of the Old Testament history. In, in, in a way, if we were to summarize that we could take some of the, the highest points of that and, and kind of come up with a profile. We see that God promised that a Savior would be birthed from a woman, from the seed of woman, which is a really interesting phrase because women do not have seed. And what is being expressed there is that this would be a supernatural birth that did not need a man for that process. And that this seed of woman would come and, and that she would conquer, or that he would conquer the enemy, that he would crush the head of the serpent who had brought sin into the world in the first place. And then God promised in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, that that one who was coming would come through one particular family, that through the family of Abraham, all the nations of the world would be blessed. All the people of the world would be blessed through that one man's family. Furthermore, in Genesis chapter 49, it's made clear that God promised that from that man's family who later ended up with 12 tribes a few generations down, that one specific tribe would be the one from whom would come a king whose rule would never end, that the scepter would never depart from the tribe of Judah. And then as the story of the Old Testament continues to unfold, there is one particular family within that tribe that God makes a promise Two, from the household of David and says, David, it's going to be one of your descendants who will establish this kingdom. And, and, and he will rule for eternity. That he will rule forever. Of his kingdom there will be no end. And in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16, he talks about this eternal kingdom that would be a, a result of the lineage of David in particular. And the rest of the Old Testament unfolds and, and, and we see from that point forward that all of the work of the prophets and, and, and the writings of the Psalms and, and the things that are taking place that even in, in times of judgment, that in all of that, God continues to use the prophets and, and, and the writers of the Old Testament to point to these promises again and again as the ultimate hope. He begins to work through the, the prophets that he would send generation after generation, even in seasons of judgment where Israel is being disciplined by God, saying, listen, I know it's heavy now. I know that it's difficult now. And you're going through a season where, where my hand is sort of heavy upon you. But I just want you to know, there's coming a time where the king will reign, where suffering will be no more, where the lion will lay down with the lamb, where people will take their weapons and, and, and melt them down and, and beat them into farming equipment because there won't be any war anymore. There, there's coming a time where my redemption is going to be so perfect and so complete that all the brokenness of this world will be forgotten. They won't even be remembered anymore. This was a comfort to the people of God who were in a place of suffering. The last of these prophets was a prophet named Malachi. Now Malachi lived about 420 B.C., 
He was the last of the Old Testament prophets. And he spoke to Israel out of a time period where the nation had grown weary of waiting for this kingdom. They had come back from exile and they had rebuilt the, the, the temple and, and rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem. And, and, and they, were, they were thinking, the thought was, that once we get to that place and we, 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 we build this, then, then the Messiah will come in and all of redemptive history will meet its, meet its end and, and, and everything will get better. But the walls were built. And the foundation was laid and the temple was constructed and they were sitting there going, well, where is it? Where's the peace? Where's, where's all the things that you promised? And they began to grow weary and so God used Malachi to point them forward again to that coming kingdom. Malachi warns Israel in Malachi chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, that there will be a moment where God himself will enter the temple that they had built. Where God himself will come walking in to that temple. Now, this is an incredible promise. I mean, this, is, this throws them back to thinking about Sinai and that moment where God descended on the top of the mountain. The whole mountain caught fire and was surrounded in a cloud. And if anybody touched it, you died. The, the, the idea that God would come to this temple, that was a huge, huge promise. He also promised that in that moment, God would judge with righteous judgment and provide justice. That the compromises of the priesthood and of the people would be dealt with. And by the end of the book of Malachi, he closes his prophetic ministry with a, a final promise that before the day of the Lord, which is that time where God will finally deal with everything, that great and final and terrible day where God will judge the earth and finally make things right. That before that, that God will send the prophet Elijah and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of, their chil of the children to their fathers. And then he says, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. In other words, through the prophet Malachi... At the end of the Old Testament, 420 years before the time that Jesus is born, a promise is given. Before that great and, and final and terrible day, the day of the Lord, the day of judgment where, where everything is righted and, and final judgment takes place, God is going to send a final warning. He's going to send it in, in, in the spirit of Elijah. And he's going to come and he's going to prepare the way for that moment where judgment begins. And then, after making this promise, the very last verse of the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Then after making this promise that there would be one who comes before the Messiah to prepare the way for the Messiah to warn Israel before the time of judgment. At the end of that moment, guess what happens? God goes dark. It's silence. For 400 years, it's quiet. No prophet is raised up. There's nobody who, who is now speaking on behalf of God. It is quiet. Silence. Is that awkward? Imagine 400 years of it. 400 years where no prophet speaks on behalf of God. 
Silence. Awkward, terrible silence. Does God see? Does God care? To, to, to put this into perspective, no words from God for 400 years by the mouth of a prophet. The United States has been a country for 244 years. How much history has happened in that time? 400 years where no prophet speaks on behalf of God. 400 years is a very long time. And the people wait. And then suddenly, seemingly out of nowhere, as a matter of fact, it's, it's like... It's just a normal day. The way that the Bible describes it, there's just this, this normal day. Suddenly at a time when no one expects it, the silence is broken. And God sends an angel, a messenger from himself, and speaks. He is once again stirring things up among the people. In Luke chapter 1, we have that story. Verse 5. In the days of Herod, the king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron. Her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in the commandments and the statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren. And both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and to burn incense. So Zechariah, who's a priest of the household of Abijah, it's Abijah's turn to come and serve in the temple, and so he comes to the temple to perform a service. They cast lots for who gets to burn incense in the holy place, not the holiest of holies, but in the, the holy place at the incense altar right before the veil. Zechariah draws the straw. Verse 10. And the whole multitude of people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. Now, just as a reminder, when you went into the holy place, you were as close to the holiest of holies that you could get to. Only the high priest could go in there one day out of the year, and if he had sin that was not accounted for, he died on the inside of that curtain. The minute he crossed that threshold, judgment took place, and he died. So now here's Zechariah. There's the veil, right? Now I would imagine if you're getting that close to the holiest of holies, you're like, okay, better make sure I got all my sins dealt with. Right? Every secret thing is confessed. There's nothing hidden. I've, I've, I've slain the, the fatted calf. I've, I've killed the lamb. The blood's been sprinkled. I'm cleansed. Okay, now go in, right? And he goes in and he's doing his priestly thing and he's about to burn incense. And all of a sudden, one of the angels whose, whose job it is to stand next to God on the throne shows up right next to the altar of incense where he's headed. It's no doubt a terrifying moment. First of all, you're not supposed to be here. (laughs) Second of all, did I cover every sin? Was everything confessed, right? Because angels only show up in the holy place when judgment is about to go down. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him, rightly so. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he'll be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. Now check this out. 
and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Prepared for what? To receive the Messiah. (laughs) The angel comes. Remember, last words that God said were, I'm sending a guy like Elijah, right? And, and he's going to be the one that prepares the way for the king who will exercise final authority in the day of the Lord. I'm, I'm sending a, a warning, a forerunner, somebody who will make ready people's hearts to receive this king. And here... After 400 years of silence, God speaks. And it's almost like he's just continuing the thought from Malachi. Right? He's like, the last thing I said to you was this. Let's continue that thought. (laughs) See, for God, 400 years isn't that long of a time at all. But he begins to speak. God is stirring Then Zechariah said to the angel, verse 18, How shall I know this? For I'm an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. Let me, can I break that down just a little bit for you? Zechariah hears from an angel standing next to the incense altar a promise directly from God. Zechariah's response is, yeah, but I'm, I'm kind of old. My wife's old. I really do want a son. But how do I really know that this is going to come to pass? Gabriel's response is, I'm an angel. <laughs> I normally hang out with God. He sent me to come talk to you. If God sent me to come talk to you, then this promise is as good as gold. It's done in God's economy. And so he says, verse 20, and behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things have taken place. Because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. <laughs> I love this. He's like, since you don't have anything smart to say, <laughs> how about you just say nothing? <laughs> this is great, man. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. Oh, excuse me, verse 21. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. They're like, hey, what, what's going on? He's taking a long time. He's just lighting some incense. What's, what's happening? When he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was, entered, was ended, he went home. And after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept it to her kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. And God's promise comes true in the life of Zechariah and Elizabeth. When God breaks his silence, he picks right up where he left off with Malachi. And the breaking of this silence marks the beginning of the arrival of Christ. We've talked about how God sees our predicament. And we've talked about how God pursues. But now is the moment where God arrives. Where all the promises of God are are finally coming together in one person. And the arrival of his son, Jesus Christ. God says, oh yeah, that, that thought that I left you with at the Old Testament, yeah, it's still on my mind. 
And now's the moment. Now's the time. Then God makes the announcement, not just to the parents of John the Baptist, but to Mary, the mother of Jesus. And in this portion of Scripture, God tells Mary what he's going to do through her life and why it is he's going to do it. Now, we may not pick up on the clues so readily, but I want to draw our attention to several elements within this story, within this moment in history as we see Gabriel commissioned to give an announcement to Mary. In the sixth month, that is in the sixth month of John the Baptist uh, being in the womb of his mother, Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin who was betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. Listen. First of all, I want you to see something. God is about to announce his arrival. Okay? But, but why? Why is God stepping into history in this way? Now you and I, we have the benefit of Christmas after Christmas. We rehearse these things. But you have to remember from, from the perspective of these folks here in this moment of time they cannot see the full redemptive work that God is about to do they do not understand all that God has planned in his son they only know that there's coming a king and a a kingdom and it'll be without end They, they don't get all of the implications but they know it's coming through Abraham through Judah and through David they know that that's happening and the first words that the angel speaks to Mary is in verse 27, to to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. We'll get to the words in just a minute, sorry. The first person that the angel comes to to make this announcement to is the person who will give birth to Jesus. And it makes it clear in the text that he was of the house of David. In other words, God is demonstrating through the person that he's chosen to bear his son that his promises are true. God arrives, listen, first of all, if you're taking notes, God arrives to fulfill. To fulfill. To fulfill what? His promise. Remember the promise, Genesis 3.15? I'm sending A son, born of the seed of a woman. And he is going to crush the head of the serpent, though his heel will be bruised. And then he promised to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. And it's coming from the the household of Abraham, from the nation that will come from Abraham. And then he promised to Jacob, That one of your sons, the tribe of Judah, that the king who is coming will come from Judah. And in Genesis chapter 49, verses 8 through 12, he makes it clear that this king will be of the tribe of Judah. And then he says, of course, I promise not only that it will come as the seed of a woman, or out of the nation of Israel, or of the tribe of Judah, but out of the royal line, or the royal family of David. And in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16, he says, that king that's coming, his kingdom will last forever and ever. God is keeping a promise. His word to mankind since the beginning of time, is being faithfully executed now. He came to fulfill, to fulfill his promise. And then verse 28, and he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. She's like, okay, is this a good thing or is this a bad thing? 
And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Here's our second clue. What's the mission of God in coming? Why is he here? Why has God arrived now? God arrived, first of all, to fulfill a promise. Second of all, if you're taking notes, to save. To save. You say, Jeremy, where do you get that from? Well, it's in the name. It's in the name Jesus. Jesus is a derivative of the name Joshua. And the name Joshua in the Old Testament, when you break down the meaning of that name, means salvation. It's hinted at, if you turn with me just real quickly, keep a thumb here, and go back to the book of Matthew. And in Matthew chapter 1, we have another version of the same birth story here. Beginning in verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus took place in this way. When his merry mother had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly because she's pregnant and she shouldn't be. Right? So he says, oh, I'm, I'm going to divorce her. I'm going to make this kind of quietly go away. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. There's that word, salvation, right? And then look at the next phrase. For he will save his people from their sins. God arrives, first of all, to fulfill a promise. Second of all, though, he arrives to save people from their sins. His name means salvation. How great is it that God's like thinking this through? He's like, okay, this is good. Watch how I weave all of this together. Remember Moses couldn't take the people of God into all that God had promised them. He could not deliver them. He was forbidden, to, he was forbidden from, from leading the, the children of Israel into all that God had promised in the promised land. And who took over? Joshua. Salvation. The one whose name means salvation. He <laughs> says, I'm going to lead you into everything that I've promised. The land flowing with milk and honey. Victory over your enemies. I'm going to lead you into that land, not with Moses, but with the one whose name means salvation. <laughs> he came to save his people from their sins. Listen, Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise of a child that will be Emmanuel. God with us. Savior the one who came to deliver us and to lead us into all that God has promised. Going back to Luke. He says, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. Verse 32, he will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. God arrives to fulfill, to save, thirdly, to reveal. To reveal. Notice how in verse 32 it says, that he will be called Son of the Most High. There's <laughs> something really amazing about this. When you, when you think about trying to imagine God, this is an exercise we've done with kids in the past, like draw a picture of God, right? 
get some color crayons out and draw a picture of God, right? And they're like, okay. And so they, they think back to like cartoons that they've seen where God's like a, a, a big white guy with a beard and he looks kind of like Santa Claus. And, you know, they, in their minds, they're just trying to figure out or maybe it's a, like a cloud or they come up with all their own ideas of what they think God is like. And, 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 and if I say to you, tell me, describe for me what God looks like. The best that we can do is, is, is maybe think back to like paintings that we've seen or historic ideas or, or, or the reference points that we have from other people's ideas about what God must be like. But here God defines what he's like for himself in his son. He reveals himself fully through his son. He will be the son of the most high. Hebrews 1 puts it this way. Let me, let me just read it to you because it's so good. It says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, and through whom also he created the world. And he, that is his Son, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Here's, here's what the author of Hebrews is saying. He's like, if you want to know what God is like. Right, we got ideas from listening to the prophets. We, we got details and bits and pieces here and there. But, but when we look at Jesus, we see exactly who God is. It's not hidden. It's not through a mist. It's not veiled in some way. The exact imprint of who God is, his exact representation, his character, his heart is displayed through the person of Jesus. Listen, if you're here this morning and you are laden with sins, your heart is heavy and your conscience is burdened, and you want to know what God thinks about you, look into the face of Jesus and see how he treated sinners. If you're here this morning and your heart is broken because of loss, because of death, because of disease and the way that sin has affected this fallen world, and ravaged it so completely. And you want to know, what does God think about all this brokenness? What does he think? You look into the face of Jesus. And you see how he dealt with the brokenness of the world. How his heart broke at the tomb of Lazarus. Of how he could not stand to see the people laden with leprosy. How he, he cared for the weak and the, the lame and the blind and the sick. Look at the heart of God for our suffering. See it in the face of Jesus. You see, God has arrived in the Advent. And he has arrived to fulfill his promise, to save his people from their sins, and to reveal the Father, and who he is in the face of his Son. And the text goes on to say in verses 32 and 33, not only did he come to fulfill, to save, to reveal, but he also came to inaugurate his kingdom. To inaugurate his kingdom. It makes it clear right here in this passage that The Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, verse 32, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. In other words, the advent, the bringing of Jesus to the earth in fulfillment of all of the prophecies of the Old Testament. 
The coming of Jesus, the arrival of Jesus in this moment is the very moment that God is saying, my kingdom has come. It's been inaugurated. The king has arrived. And he's going to start gathering his people. And that group is going to continue to grow. It's going to be like a little pinch of leaven and a lump of dough. That you, you just put this little pinch of leaven in there, and the next thing you know, it permeates the whole thing. He says, that's what the earth is like. The kingdom is going to be this, this thing. When the king comes, and the message about his arrival gets sent out, and he saves his people from their sins, and he demonstrates that he has authority over even death itself and over the enemy. When he demonstrates all of that through his life, that message is going to go out and it's going to continue to just permeate the world all the way around. It's just going to be spreading and spreading and spreading until the whole earth is full of his glory. He came to inaugurate the kingdom. Listen, the timeline of the Bible and of the history of the world is headed to one glorious end. A world of people lovingly, freely, living under the rule of King Jesus forever and ever. See right here, right now, this is what's happening. Right now. You are the kingdom people. You're, you're like ambassadors for this kingdom. The way that you live right now under his rule and under his authority is demonstrating what that coming kingdom is supposed to look like. Us surrendering to the rule of Jesus now is a living prophecy of that moment when the great and final and terrible day of the Lord comes and God does away with death, he does away with our enemy, he does away with sin, and it's a new heaven and a new earth and we all live happily ever after. It's a, it, it's a signaling towards that moment right there. We are living as people under King Jesus' inaugurated rule, even now. And lastly, and I don't want you to miss this, I think if there was any point that I want you to remember from our time today, it's this one in verse, verses 34 and 35. Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. He goes on to give her proof, a way to verify that this is true, because Elizabeth is pregnant with John the Baptist, and it's miraculous. It shouldn't be because she's so old. And Mary will leave and go get proof of that. But here's what I want you to see. Listen. From verse 35, he says, The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. The last thing that I want you to see is that God arrived to fulfill, to save, to reveal, and to inaugurate. But also, he came to make war. You say, what? That's right. He came to make war. Now, most of us, I think, are aware that in World War II, D-Day was one of the most important and decisive moments of that conflict. The Allied forces gathered together and stormed the beaches in France and confronted the Nazi threat who at that time was just going through Europe, just destroying everything in its path. 
And in that day, we often think of the moment when all the, of the amphibious assault, when all the soldiers out in boats came to the shore and it was just a brutal, brutal scene. But what you may not realize is that actually isn't phase one of that day. You see, phase one was actually an air assault. The invasion of Normandy began with a large-scale parachute drop that included 13,100 soldiers of the 82nd and 101st Airborne Divisions. And the attack occurred during the night in the early hours of June 6, 1944. And it was the vanguard of the Allied operations in Normandy. Their job was to block approaches into the vicinity of the amphibious landing at, at Utah Beach, to capture causeway exits off the beaches so that once they got on land and fought their way up the shore that they could also begin to penetrate deeper into France. And they were supposed to establish crossings over the nearby rivers so that they could facilitate the joining up of the two American beachheads. The men who jumped from those planes were planted well behind enemy lines. They dropped way, way back into the combat zone. They were there to prepare the way for the secondary assault on the beaches. Now listen, here's what's happening. In Christ, the Son of God is being parachuted behind enemy lines. The Son of God has, has left his abode in heaven outside of and distinct from creation. The creation that came by the, the power of his words. His mouth spoke and things appeared. Atoms popped into existence. Land was formed. Water came into being. Space was created. And now, the one who did all of that plops himself behind enemy lines into the story. Oh, man. You see, God drops behind enemy lines as a one-man army. <laughs> and he launches this rescue mission to free mankind. God arrives and he, and, he, and he says, essentially, my people will no longer be slaves. Sin will no longer have dominion or authority over you. The enemy, that, that, that serpent of old, will no longer possess or oppress you. The world will no longer be broken. Death will no longer have authority here. He was dropped behind enemy lines in order that we could follow him to victory as well. Listen, because God arrived, because God not only saw, because God not only pursued, but because he actually came into our story, we're free from the power of sin and of death. Salvation has been guaranteed to all who trust that Jesus fulfilled his mission, and he really did save his people from their sins. Our battle with the enemy, it's secure. We know the outcome. We, as a result of Jesus' arrival, are the people of God, living under the rule of King Jesus, bringing the good news of God's good rule to the world. Amen. Would you stand with me? Praise to God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly 
Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. What great news. Father, thank you. Thank you for sending your Son. Thank you that you came as our rescuer, that you fulfilled your promise, that you inaugurated your kingdom, that you displayed your character so perfectly through your son, and thank you that you have made war with our enemy. As we surrender our hearts to you and as we live under your authority and your rule in our lives, may we, with every breath that we breathe, Proclaim the reality of your kingdom. Even at this very moment, Lord, I pray over this congregation, over us as your people, that as disciples, every area of our lives would increasingly come under the surrender and submission of the rule of King Jesus. Keep teaching us, keep purifying us, keep making us a holy people. Be our God. We are your people. Lord, we love you. As we go now and as we continue to anticipate that moment where we will respond to the advent, Lord, I just pray that joy would come bubbling up, that the reality of the victory that we have in the gospel would be made so clear to us. So, Father, have your way. And in this season, be glorified in our lives. In the name and for the glory of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Quick reminder, chairs do not need to be stacked, so you guys are free to mingle and visit, and we'll see you Christmas Eve. God bless you guys.